0: Hello, and welcome to the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Muzia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the podcast. And a special shout out to our latest patrons, Heather, Corey, Cassidy, and Meredith. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. Head on over to patreon.com slash marinebiolife. Patreon.com slash marinebiolife. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question: What's the difference between an astronaut and a deep sea diver? The pressure. What did the scuba diver use to cut seaweed? A saw. Today's guest is tropical marine ecologist Colin Howe. Colin specializes in studying corals in the Caribbean. He is also the creator behind the Instagram and YouTube channels Marine Sci for Life. In today's episode, Colin breaks down the difference between a marine ecologist and marine biologist, what research at different career levels can look like, and the importance of experience. Colin also shares his coral research throughout the Caribbean, why this dynamic ecosystem is his favorite to study, and how both corals and careers can thrive despite, and maybe because of, disguised setbacks. Please enjoy. Colin, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today.
1: Hi, Cara. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, your title officially is tropical marine ecologist, and that's a slight variant of marine biologist. Could you explain how they're connected and separate all at the same time?
1: Sure. Yeah, I when I try to explain people what I what I study, tropical marine ecology is just a little bit more of a specific term than marine biology because if you think about it, marine biology is just a huge Kind of umbrella term. There's really a lot of different positions that could be considered marine uh, marine biologists. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, for me, I've really targeted in a very particular region that's more tropical. So it's in the Caribbean, focused primarily in coral reefs. But I don't also just study coral reefs. I also study things like seagrass beds and mangrove habitats. And so, tropical marine ecologist really encapsulates all of the different nooks and crannies that I get to to study and look into.
0: I love it. I like the, it niches you down, but it still opens you up so much because you, right? Like, because ecology isn't just one specific single organism, right? Like if you're studying sea slugs or dolphins, right? And you're like, True. an entire ecosystem is what I look at.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Now, I really focus, if I had to boil it down uh, even further, I would say corals. I love studying corals. I think I have gotten a, a lot of experience doing that. Mm-hmm. And corals have a huge ecological role. So I think anyone studying corals also has some kind of ecology uh, mixed in there.
0: Yes. So what got you started studying corals?
1: Yeah, good question. Well, I you know... Uh, I think very common to other scientists, I didn't start with corals. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really, my start was with the first opportunity I had. And uh, I guess it really started when I was young. Both my parents, so uh, both my parents are from the Caribbean. And uh, when I was a young boy, we get a chance to go snorkeling. And that was really profound. And then uh, we got a chance to do some traveling. My father's in the Air Force. We were in military family, so we traveled a lot. And we were stationed abroad in Japan for about four years. And while we were in that part of the world, we flew down to Australia. And I was lucky enough to do my first ever discover scuba dive where you don't need a certification and you get an instructor with you and you can go scuba diving. And I was 14 and that was like, <laughs> that was so transformative. And I was like, yep, mm-hmm. this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to college, I went to college to study marine biology. And my first internship, if you will, my first actual access to the ocean was studying lobsters. Hmm. One of the professors at uh, Old Dominion University where I went to college was studying lobsters and he had a spot on his in his lab for me to do, go down to the Keys in 2012 and study lobster uh, populations and sponges and crabs and invertebrates and stuff like that. So I started with that and over time I transitioned.
0: Okay, I, I love that you started with lobsters and that it was spiny, was it spiny lobsters? I'm making an
1: assumption here. Yes, <laughs> spiny lobsters, that's right, yeah. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. So for listeners, spiny lobsters, well, they are spiny, Um, but one of the main people think of lobsters and they think of these like giant front claws and spiny Mm -hmm. lobsters don't have them. So that's one of like the biggest uh, characteristics that differ them from a lobster that most people think of like up in Maine. Uh, So what was was your study? What did it entail studying these lobsters and what, what were some of the things that you found out?
1: That's a great question. So at this time, I was still an undergrad. And so I was mainly assisting graduate students in Dr. Butler's lab uh, on Mm -hmm. their projects. And that included uh, a range of things. One grad student was looking at uh, a lobster disease Mm -hmm. that affects their molting. Another grad student, he's actually now, uh, I worked with him at FWC. He had his PhD and he was studying acoustics Trying to mm. understand certain uh, how acoustic uh, impacted larval sediment of these, like lobsters. And then uh, another grad student was studying a uh, species of crab and how they can actually be managing uh, macroalgal growth, right? Mm. So we have a big macroalgae problem in the Caribbean. And he was studying this species of crab to see how well they consume algae as a method for controlling it in the Caribbean. Mm. So I got a chance, I got my hands involved in a bunch of uh, different projects. And that was really, really transformative for me early on in my career.
0: Absolutely. That's really fun. So you were mostly distilling the data that other people had gone out to the field or down to the Keys and collected, correct? Were, did you able, Were you able to make a field trip yourself?
1: Yeah. So while I was still in college, I traveled down to the Keys for about six weeks and it was, you know, my dream because it was just field work <laughs> Exactly what everybody at that stage of their career is interested in is scuba diving. It's helping grad students on the boat. It's capturing lobsters out in the wild. I got really good at learning how to catch lobster. Uh... <laughs> so how do you, what,
0: what's some of the best methods to catch a lobster?
1: Oh, man, there's so many different Yes. Well, we so one of the one of the projects that we were involved in was studying something called uh, casitas, and this is an illegal fishing practice. Now it's actually legal in the Bahamas, but not here in the Keys. But it's uh, they have these contraptions in the water that really do a good job of of uh, recruiting lobster. So you'll go underneath, and about fifty to one hundred lobster can be under these things, and. Uh, it's really easy to go underneath and catch these guys and put them in bags. Um, and so they were having huge impacts on the fisheries population there. And so, and there was a big lawsuit and some people went to jail as a result of this. But long story short, there's about, there are about 2000 of these structures just left out there. Oh. And they were curious to see what impacts these structures were having on these populations. Right. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this kind of coincided with some of the other disease work because this disease is communicable and mm. it, it spreads easily among these um, spe- these uh, lobsters. Mm. And so we were catching these lobsters to study uh, their health and other things. Many of them we had to dissect, and so unfortunately we had to deal with all these lobster tails for the internship. Was <laughs> 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 this uh, is a real Well,
0: y'all, <laughs> y'all, you're not allergic, are you?
1: No, thankfully, but I am ironically uh, I am allergic to fish.
0: Oh, but not shellfish.
1: but not shellfish.
0: Fascinating.:
1: It is odd.: Yeah, yeah. it's
0: usually reversed. indeed. Okay, so what did they find with the casitas? Were they helping trans or uh, transmit this disease?
1: You know, man, it's hard to I, to be honest, I'm not fully I can't fully remember the okay. results, but um
0: but you got to go down to the keys and help yeah. catch lobster.
1: Indeed, and, and that, that was business. more, you know, at that stage of my career, I was more assistant. I didn't do a lot of the research or crunch numbers. Right. I was more the field kind of component, helping tanks and catching species and drawing blood and doing lab work, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's that's a really solid beginning. <laughs> but that, but it like is a very good. Um, it highlights like what a beginning career job could look like, right? Like you're not, you're not conducting your own research. You're helping other people with theirs and you, your first opportunity happened to be an awesome one where you could go diving and catch lobster.
1: Indeed. Great points. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Very cool. So you mentioned that you worked for the state of Florida for a little bit. Could you tell me a little bit about what you were doing with the state and how that kind of came about?
1: Yeah. So I had the opportunity to work for the state of Florida on two occasions. Um, the first was uh, just before grad school, um, and after a few internships, and I worked for John Pennekamp Reef State Park as a park ranger, mm. and I was really lucky. It was, I had a connection, a close friend of mine who was in the Keys told me that the park was hiring and looking for a park ranger, and so I applied and, and thankfully got the job, and I uh, got a chance to work there for about eight or nine months.
0: Amazing. What were some of your roles and responsibilities as a park ranger at
1: a marine park? Yeah, so we were very lucky. Actually, John Pennycamp was one of the most busiest state parks in all of Florida. So, Florida is actually a great state park system. They have like 144 different state parks. And John Pennycamp, the year that I was there, almost broke a million visitors within a year. Unreal. Wow. And so you're dealing a lot with uh, a lot of tourists, you're dealing with a lot of guests, you're learning how to manage um, wild spaces. So the state owns acres and acres of uninhabited land along the Keys Mm -hmm. and Rangers, in addition to, you know, cleaning the park and making sure the park is running smoothly, will go out and monitor these areas and, you know, clear invasive species. So I learned my, I learned a bit of plants, not a lot, but I learned my <laughs> plants and which is invasive and which not. But then John Pennekamp also has uh, some jurisdiction over water. It's about three miles mm-hmm. offshore and so Mainly we would uh, install channel markers. So when boats are traveling in and out of the mangroves um, and there's like shallow water, too shallow for boats to go, but there's like a channel, we'll, we'll install these channel markers so boats know where to go. So they don't run aground. And we'll clean pencil buoys, which <laughs> you have a paint scraper and you're just scraping barnacles and fire coral and sponges and other nasty stinging stuff off these things uh, all day. So <laughs> it was a good mix.
0: So you got this job between your bachelor's and your master's. Why, why did you decide to go out into the world and, and uh, pursue a career versus going straight into your master's? And then what prompted you to do your master's?
1: Ah, uh, Great question. Well, hmm. to be honest, my, I applied for grad school as soon as I got out of college but didn't get anywhere. I didn't get accepted okay. to any of my applications, but I did get accepted to two different internships in the Florida Keys. Okay. And so then I took one of those internships, and that was really transformative for me. It was in Key Largo at a place called Reef, and they learned my fish, my tropical fish, and they really learned a lot about lionfish research. Mm-hmm. I got an opportunity to Uh, participate in some active research by dr green stephanie green who's now a full uh an associate professor in canada and she has like grad students one of them just offended (laughs) Uh, and so i got a chance to participate in research and that kind of helped me build my skill sets to be more competitive for grad school grad school was originally the goal you know i've always wanted my phd i've kind of always wanted to get into it um like a master's program. Um, but you know, right out of college, that was really challenging and hard for me. It took me a while.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and you know, there's that bit of imposter syndrome that kind of sneaks up right when you, (laughs) (laughs) you're out of college and you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do next? And you know, grad school isn't an, an immediate option. And so thankfully I was really lucky to get offered a few internships and, um, in the keys. And then after the keys, I was offered, it was the only job that I was offered. I applied for like five or six different positions. And the only one that I got accepted to was a TA uh, teaching and research associate position in a study abroad facility in Bonaire. It's in the Southern part of the Caribbean, about mm. 70 miles North of Venezuela. And it's really next to Aruba. Most people know about Aruba, but in fact, there's a, it's called the ABC change. Uh, it's, the, it's called the ABC Islands and it's part of the Dutch Antilles and so I was in Bonaire for about eight months. Okay
0: and it's Aruba, Bonaire and Curacao? Correct. ABC? Yep. Okay. So what were you doing down there?
1: So while I was in um, Bonaire I had a really great Uh, experience. I was teaching uh, college students. So American college students would fly down to Bonaire to get college credits towards marine science. Mm. And so we offered classes like marine ecology, research methods. There was a cultural uh, lesson that taught students about the local indigenous people and the language, Papiamentu. And we got a chance to teach a lot of these college students coral ecology directly in person. So each of us interns. So I was an intern there and we would get about six or seven students that would follow us in the dive and we would host like underwater quizzes. So they'd learn their corals and they'd learn their fish through the books and in the classroom setting. And then we would reinforce that by interacting in beautiful and healthy coral reefs. And Bonaire was such a great place to do that because the species diversity in the coral cover there was, it's still one of the best in the Caribbean. And so the mm. students got, you know, a much more in depth understanding about coral reef communities and species and ecology. But then I also, you know, as a TA got a really great up close uh, look and exposure to studying coral reef ecology and learning how to do science, learning how to teach science, and I was very fortunate to hop on a publication and get my first publication before grad school at this facility studying um, scuba diver impacts on nearby coral reefs. So, That's awesome. Yeah, this study, you know, so Bonaire is um, the interesting thing about Bonaire is the coral reefs are sloping. So you can walk right offshore and mm-hmm. you can swim maybe, you know, 10 minutes and the coral reefs are right there. Mm. And Bonaire is actually a really popular dive destination. They see thousands Mm -hmm. of divers every year. And this diver traffic, if you will, actually can impact coral reefs. It can impact the structure of coral reefs, right? And that's one of the most beneficial traits of coral reefs is that habitat. And so Mm -hmm. we were trying to see what impact these divers have on these these popular dive sites. Was it
0: largely... I mean, some of the impacts that you saw, were they largely physical, like divers touching the corals or accidentally knocking it with their fins or were there something else that kind of added to the stress?
1: No, you hit it right on the head. So we okay. studied uh, a metric called rugosity, and that's mm-hmm. just a fancy science term that tries to quantify the, all the nooks and crannies and the branches <laughs> and the bouldering corals, right? All that kind of three-dimensional space. Yeah. We have, uh, there's a there's a method uh, to quantify that, and we use this in addition to other techniques to confirm that the structure of coral reefs were actually lower, right where the start of these dive center these popular dive sites were. So each of the mm-hmm. dive sites are designated by this bright yellow rock. You can see it right on the road, so you can pull off on the side of the street, have your tank and go diving, and most that's how most people do it. And right within 200 meters in either direction of this yellow rock, the structure of the coral reefs were a little bit lower than a little bit further on beyond that 200 meter mark. And so this was one of the results from that study.
0: Mm, very interesting. Yeah. So were these internships, I mean, they, they likely helped you get your job for John Pennekamp in the state, right? And yeah. then were, did all this experience adding that to your grad school resume, help you get you into grad school.
1: Yes. But not only uh, did it help me get into grad school, but it helped me actually get funding for it. So I, mm. and this is something that I think is really important for your listeners or anyone yes. who's thinking about grad school, which is unique for STEM fields in marine science specifically and other fields like business and law and, and, and pre-med, Grad school is not usually paid for. You have to, you know, take on either student loans or pay for it on your own. The beauty of marine science is that if you play your cards right and you have a robust enough resume Mm -hmm. and you apply in a unique there's kind of a dance you have to do, but if you apply in a particular way, you'll get into grad school, but actually get it funded. And so Mm -hmm. I had tuition coverage, so I got part of my tuition covered. I was given I was awarded a STEM grant and I was awarded an NSF EPSCORE grant. So there's this you know, funding that was awarded to the University of the Virgin Islands, mm-hmm. and I was given a research associate uh, position under that. So I got a small salary while I uh, worked on my master's.
0: Amazing. So could you describe a little bit what your grad school dance looked like, and did having, did having a specific question help? with that and help get you that funding.
1: Great question. Well, I think what I think it is very common for in marine science in general for you to get some kind of support from the university. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've had some professors explain to me that I should not accept a graduate program unless it is funded. Right? Mm. Now, Love that's, that. that's Love not, that advice. I agree. I mean, I think it's great. Now, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not as qualified, right? right? But usually the best way and this is how I applied was contacting my graduate advisor before I even submitted application. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of that dance where mm-hmm. in this field, these professors are getting hundreds of these emails every year. Mm -hmm. Asking one if there's spots in their lab, if there are are available funding, asking more details about their research. And so I contacted one of my several professors, one at the University of the Virgin Islands, months before the deadline. And I said, hey, my name is Colin. This is kind of my experience. Here's my resume. I'm really interested in your research. Uh, And my number one important question was, are you accepting graduate students for the following semester? Mm-hmm. and from there we were able to kind of build a, a, a sense of communication and he my his name is Tyler Smith Dr. Smith and he could get a full assessment of who I was and what I could bring to the table and vice versa and um, you know when I submitted my application it was a it was months before the deadline but when the deadline was due I had already gotten my offer
0: That's a good feeling.
1: (laughs) It was really rewarding. And I think that stage, that kind of dance is critical. Yes. Where you can communicate with these professors. And if you're able to do that and you're able to establish a sense of communication and understanding between a research professor and associates, oftentimes they will work towards finding you some type of support. Instead, if you just Write an application and, you know, submit it blindly to whatever university you're going to and trying to get into, you know, whichever one accepts you without that process Mm -hmm. makes it difficult for you to find funding. And so I highly encourage anyone who's thinking about grad school to do your homework a little bit and study each lab, what the research is, read a few of their papers, and then early on in the semester, email the, the, an ideal professor what your interests are and ask them point blank, are they accepting grad students for the following semester? And that that is really easy because oftentimes it depends on if some professors will not accept grad students if they don't have funding for them, right? And so mm-hmm. that initial question is a great first one to ask because the professors will know, I plan to take X number of students next semester. And so just simply asking that question can save you a lot of time. (laughs) Because if they don't have any room or if they, they don't have any funding, they'll just tell you, I'm sorry, we don't. And that way you don't waste your time going into too much detail with application. You can kind of pinpoint your effort into opportunities that are more fruitful. Yes,
0: I love this so much for so many different reasons. One, it helps... And I have told listeners this, too, that are considering grad school. And I think on the, the student application end, it helps so much because it shows that you've, you've picked something that interests you. Yeah. If you've done all this research and you've reached out to these professors and you've established this relationship, not only does it better your chances of actually getting into grad school rather than being part of the mass application and, like, let's see which lab may want people yeah. Um, It also shows that shows your own passion and your own interest. And I think undergrad and grad school are very different in that grad school is much more intensive and requires a lot more from you. And if you don't like what you're researching, you're probably not going to like grad school. So it's important to kind of establish that right up
1: front. Absolutely. I think you summed it up perfectly, you know it definitely does help you narrow down your interest because again, marine science, marine biology is such a huge field. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of, speaking to a lot of recent graduates, you know, both from Penn State and from my past, that's a number one thing is not knowing where to start because there's just so many awesome and exciting areas of biology and marine science. And so doing Mm -hmm. that homework can definitely help you kind of Hone in, dial in, and be very targeted and effective in your approach. Yeah.
0: Yes. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I uh, I watched a couple of your videos and they're <laughs> fantastic. Oh, thank you. Um, and one of your videos, you you point came out point blank and were just like, "College is hard," um, and because it was, you found it so challenging, you learned a lot of professional development tips because
1: you sought help.
0: Um, What were what were some of your experiences during college that kind of like led to this growth?
1: Okay yeah I think this is something that is also very widespread and I think is very common among a lot of us marine scientists. Mm -hmm. Most people don't realize a degree for marine biology or just biology is very hard. There are high levels of math and science. I was taking calculus. I was taking statistics. Mm-hmm. I had to take organic chemistry. Oh my gosh. See, I liked organic
0: <laughs> chemistry. I'm one of the weirders that liked it. You were... Gen chem for the birds. Orgo all day. I'm like, one of the weird ones. You,
1: you were one of the exceptional. <laughs> but yes, it's hard.
0: There's a lot of high level classes.
1: Yes, organic chemistry. I'm, I'm jealous. I worked. That was. I've never worked so hard for a B plus in my entire life. Like. Organic chemistry, <laughs> man. But, one, and so so once I crashed against these kind of really challenging, hard classes, my grades dipped. And I fully understood mm-hmm. that if I was going to be competitive for grad school or later after college, I needed to get my grades up. And that, you know, I wasn't going to be competitive after college. And so I didn't want that to happen. And but fortunately, and you know, so fortunately for me, the Old Dominion actually has a great marine science pro or faculty. So my bachelor's is in biology, with a concentration Mm -hmm. in marine science. And we were very lucky to have several professors who do marine biology research, one of them being Dr. Mark Butler, who was a, he studied lobsters, and he was my first uh, foot into the door. And, you know, these are the individuals who I would go into the office hours and have a conversation with to talk about the classes that we were going through, to go over the concepts, just to help me get a better understanding of it. And the beauty of Mm -hmm. these kind of interactions were that I could learn more from these professors about professional development tips in the field of marine science, right? Like who else better to talk to than active marine biologists? And so I was very Mm -hmm. lucky to have several professors take an enormous amount of attention and focus to help me. And they walked me through, like, they, you know, individuals who had grad students told me how they prefer people to apply for grad school, right? Contacting them ahead, reading their papers, showing just similar to what we had talked about. And uh, they sh- saw some potential in me. And, and, and uh, Dr. Butler was a major aspect of that. We actually started a student organization together. It was the first of its kind, and it was primarily focused toward the field of marine biology. There were other biology student organizations, and that were more pre-med. There's actually a veterinary one, uh, but there was nothing for marine science, although we actually have a robust marine science program, and a lot of students that went to Old Dominion uh, went there for marine science. And so...
0: So you got them all together outside of class.
1: Yes. (laughs) And every single one of them was just like me who wanted to Mm -hmm. uh, learn how to develop skills and experience to be competitive after college. Right. That was the goal. And my experiences of lower grades, you know, these hard classes to meeting these professors to developing programs with them and building this student organization, we were able to do some really cool and exciting things. And Mm -hmm. I think that involvement for me in college really jump-started my career, right? And through that interactions, I met Dr. Butler, and then he gave me a spot in his lab. Then I got the chance to go to Florida. And so slowly over the years, I was able to kind of build my experiences uh, from that,
0: Yes. And you have a, you have a quote about graduate school in one of your videos, but I think it's, it's applicable to undergrad as well. Um, There's more to graduate school than gaining a few letters after (laughs) your name. And I think that's like, so profound, because a lot of people pursue those letters. And there's, you're right, there's so much more to that. And I love that you, you had this experience, even in undergrad, um, and then grad school just kind of opened up even more for you.
1: Indeed. Yeah, it definitely was. That was definitely my experience in undergrad. And it was humbling to meet other people who had your similar interests. I didn't really see Mm -hmm. that until I got to college, you know, in high school, Mm -hmm. when I was younger, me, my interest in studying corals or ocean stuff, right? Nature, biology wasn't very popular or very cool. <laughs> and that was mm-hmm. somewhat isolating in high school. But when I got to college and I got a chance to meet other, other students who were just as excited and eager and motivated and hungry to find, to build skill sets and to find a career within marine science, it also motivated me to try my best and to step up and to work Mm -hmm. with these individuals and it's crazy a lot of these people that i met in college are not only still my best friends but we've actually gotten a chance to work together over the years which is really Mm -hmm. rare uh, for most people i think
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yes i think that's one thing that's really special about marine science and we were talking a little bit before we started recording is that it is such a small world Mm And uh, and you do get these opportunities to work with people that you otherwise probably would have graduated and never spoke with again. True. Yeah. That's really cool. So let's chat a little bit about your master's and why it was such a pivotal experience for you. And then I really am super curious about your PhD studies. I want to hear about this reef in Columbia, but master's.
1: Okay, sure. So... Yeah, I was accepted to the University of the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas back mm-hmm. in 2015. And there, at the time, I was part of the largest cohort of graduate students at the time. There was 14 of us mm-hmm. from all kinds of different walks of life. And we each had our own interests uh, and kind of ideas and passions. And what I really loved about that graduate program and that experience was the ability to participate in each other's projects. Mm-hmm. It was really awesome. We kind of fostered a culture in among the other graduate students that like, Hey, if I need help on the boat, if I need an extra pair of hands, I could ask them and someone would step up and say, yes, you can, you can, I can help you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, through that, you know, I was able to focus on my own research, mm-hmm. but I also got to help study sponges, I got a chance to study sediment uh, um, along the beach, microplastics in the beach. Mm. I got a chance to study algae, uh, interactions with coral reefs. There, One of us, or our grad students, were studying stingrays, How fun. <laughs> which was cool. So we we're going out in the bay trying to catch stingrays with these nets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, other grad students were studying fish. So we were like helping tag groupers and... Uh, monitoring for large big fish offshore. Uh, I really, that was really what made it so rich was just being able to participate in just so many distinct and exciting and inquisitive research topics.
0: Yes, I love that. And it probably helped you figure out really what you like because you got so much exposure to other things.
1: Indeed, Yeah. From and you know what I tell you, I from this entire experience, the main reason there are several reasons why I like corals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Corals are actually a great species to study, and they're it's actually a very common um, focus for a lot of marine tropical marine ecologists or marine biologists. People who have that title, mm-hmm. one because they don't move, right? right? The coral is right there when you leave it. <laughs> Uh, It's very easy to study them repeatedly. They don't bite, although there are some corals, there are some species called fire coral that indeed will sting you like crazy. Uh, So you have to be careful, but they don't necessarily bite. Um, Some corals are endangered, so there's certain additional protections, but they're nowhere near the level of really popular megafauna like sea turtles and dolphins and Mm -hmm. whales. These types of species are actually very challenging inherently to study. Mm -hmm. One, because they're fast moving. They are open pelagic animals. So you spend hours and hours on the boat. You get a very little amount of data from each experience. Uh, And they're highly protected. You have to file a lot of, of, of paperwork and red tape to be able to interact with these animals
0: yes,
1: and corals in many ways have that but not as much and they're just much more easy to study uh, organisms and they have a profound impact in coral reef ecology and so for my master's thesis quickly I was studying a a hybrid coral called Acropora polyphora and this Acropora coral is kind of infamous because the two parental species, they're called um, staghorn and elkhorn corals. These are Mm -hmm. the common names, Acropora palmata and Acropora cervicornis for you science lovers out there. (laughs) And uh, these two populations were dominant in the 1980s and beyond, right? Right. They provided so much habitat and they were literally covered the coral reef uh, Caribbean basin basically. Everywhere you went, you could see these two corals. And then within about 20 years, due to compounding stressors, bleaching events, uh, pollution, coastal runoff, boat groundings, and outbreaks of disease, we lost like 95%, right? Mm -hmm. Think about that. 95% of these two species were decimated.
0: And where's, I mean, it just boggles the mind. And is that... Is that worldwide or in the Caribbean?
1: Great question. So it is in the Caribbean.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There are Acropora. There is the genus Acropora in the Indo-Pacific, in the Pacific mm-hmm. area, and they have hundreds of species. Um, and they are doing fine f- compared to our Acropora species in the Caribbean. The Caribbean mm-hmm. Acropora species have been severely degraded over the past two decades, three decades mm-hmm. now. And so uh, through this decline, we started noticing small pockets of this hybrid increase. And that's anytime you see something that's kind of counterintuitive like that, that is something that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wanted to learn more. And one of my committee members, Dr. Nicole Fogarty, she did a lot of preliminary research on this hybrid, trying to understand its ecological role within the Caribbean. What functions can it provide? What benefits can we have from having this hybrid, both ecologically and genetically? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, for my research, I was more interested in its response to a very popular and common method called coral restoration right and so this kind of ties that story so we saw this big population decline in the 1980s up until now and this really stimulated this effort in the caribbean and also around the world called coral restoration which is a scientific a process of collecting corals in the wild, growing them in underwater structures but you can also do this on land in wet tables and flow through systems and basically expedite coral growth and grow corals very large mm-hmm. and then repopulate these corals outplant these corals back on the reef and so this research and this kind of technique has been developed has been developing since the, the mid 90s and it primarily focuses on the two parental species, staghorn and elkhorn corals, right? Because we've seen such this decline and we lose all the function and ecosystem services that these corals provide. And so we've been able to really push hard to focus on these two species. Mm-hmm. However, very little research or very little understanding has been done on the hybrid. And thanks to a few advancements in molecular science and our ability to study these corals genetically Um, there's more evidence now that this hybrid actually can stimulate genetic diversity because Mm -hmm. it can reproduce back with the parental species, which is crazy.
0: Wow.
1: It can, and so this hybrid is actually reproductive. Most people will assume that some hybrids may not have that, and that's true. like
0: mules, right? Exactly, that's a great
1: example. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mules are a great example of uh, hybrid viability that is reduced, Right. right? You get a horse and a donkey that reproduce together and this combination of genetic material doesn't necessarily function right in terms of reproduction. And so for, but for this coral, it can. Not only is it reproductive but it shares some of the same health benefits and physiological traits of the parental species. Both the crop grow very quickly mm-hmm. compared to other corals. Mm-hmm. Generally, corals will grow about the rate of your thumb. But this uh, staghorn corals and elkhorn corals and this uh, proliferate or fused staghorn coral can grow 10, 15 centimeters in a year, which is like a lot, really quick for corals. Yes. And so... I was studying how does this hybrid respond to this coral restoration approach and can prolifera be incorporated within efforts throughout the Caribbean to rebuild these, you know, decimated uh, acropora populations.
0: So what were some of the things that you found? And were you out planting these guys or were you out just kind of collecting some samples and then bringing them back to the lab and doing your genetic analysis?
1: Great question. Yeah. So we were so for my masters we did what is called a common garden okay. experiment. So I located two distinct populations in St. Thomas. And luckily enough, Saint Thomas has forty six offshore like islands in K, so I had a lot to choose mm-hmm. from. And I chose two that were relatively close to the university, one on the north side and one on the south side, that both had uh, colonies of this hybrid. And I, w- I did a swap. So I fragmented a bunch of these uh, colonies and outplanted about half back where I took them from, right? So the same, they had grown and lived there the whole life. I replanted where they were. And then I took corals from the south side and took them north, and then vice versa, north to south. And I compared how these transplanted corals compared to corals that had naturally grown there, right? Because coral restoration involves that, clipping corals, taking shears and cutting coral fragments, Mm -hmm. taking them up out of the water onto a boat, driving this boat, you know, several kilometers into a nursery (laughs) or another location, and then outplanting these corals in a somewhat unique Mm -hmm. area. And no research had really looked into if this could be successfully done with Acropora, with the, um, I'm sorry, not Acropora, but Acropora prolifera. And so for my core for my studies, this is what I focused. And overall, I found no differences. The corals that were transplanted did just as well in terms of growth uh, to the natal population. And uh so that was just kind of one key to this this um, lock of can prolifera be incorporated within coral restoration? Other subsequent research has now shown that. This coral actually does really well in coral trees or coral nurseries where you propagate and grow them underwater for a number of years. And so we are slowly building uh, our understanding of how we can incorporate prolifera within coral restoration methodologies around the Caribbean.
0: Very cool. That's fascinating work.
1: I loved it. Now, did you
0: go straight from your master's to your PhD? I know you said you knew you've
1: known that you want to get your PhD. Yeah, so okay. I did not. Um <clears throat> I so after my master's uh I came back to the Keys. So this is the last time, <laughs> my final round in the Keys, and I was actually out of a job for for several months mm. after grad school. So yeah, I was looking for internships and other opportunities. And again a close or a good friend of mine who was a graduate student at UVI was now working for Florida Fish and Wildlife Research Institute mm-hmm. down in Marathon and they were they had a position that they needed to open up and so I applied and I got that position and so that was my second time working for the state of Florida Initially I was working for, you know, the park service, but now I was working for the research institute that was led by Fish, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Amazing. Commission.
0: So what was that like working working for the research institute versus the park service? Vastly different, I can only imagine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is vastly different indeed. The park service was more focused to kind of a combination of terrestrial and marine Ecosystems and right. kind of the management of that, whereas my job with FWC was uh, right more research based, and so a lot of the FWRI in Marathon is comprised of several research labs that focus on a primary on a on a specific species or ecosystem. So we have people who study finfish, so all the fish species. We have a coral team, we have a stone crab team, we have a lobster team. There used to be a comp team. And so each of these teams are scientists. Most of them have their masters or a PhD, but one or two of them actually do have a bachelor's. Um, and we follow research that's mandated by the state of Florida throughout the Florida Keys. And I was very fortunate and lucky to interact or be a part of two of these teams so I worked for the mm. finfish team for about a year and then I transitioned to the coral team which was my real uh, love mm. of course cuz I love corals and through that experience you know we got a chance to do some awesome research and do some cool field missions uh, we there's a lot of long-term monitoring out there so that you know studies that have been going on for decades mm. 15 20 years of scientists coming together and studying the coral reefs and trying to understand trends and looking over time how Mm -hmm. this ecosystem is changing. And so I was very fortunate to get a chance to participate in a lot of these long-term monitoring projects throughout the Keys, all the way out to the Dry Tortugas, which is a very remote part of Mm -hmm. the Florida Keys chain. It's about 90 uh, miles west of Key West, Yep. So it's really out in the middle of nowhere. But it has some of the most, I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. coming from Florida, I'm sure you know, it has one of the most beautiful, healthiest coral reef ecosystems uh, in mm-hmm. the entire continental United States. Yes. It's amazing. And is that,
0: that's where you did the hogfish studies, correct?
1: That's right. Yes, yes. So part of the finfish program, they wanted to study harem interactions. So hogfish have a dominant male. Who gets really large and has a harem, a small subset of females? About, I'm not sure the numbers, but they have, they establish these kind of territories and these dominant males will swim around the reef and patrol their territory, if you will. And uh, unfortunately, hogfish is also a very popular fish to go after and spearfish and to catch and hook and line. And so, uh, the best place to do it was in a place where fishing spearfishing is not allowed. <laughs> so we got a chance to go out into the Tortugas where the fish populations are still very healthy to understand this behavior. Um, but we never, we were more scouting. So in this particular trip, this was the first phase. We simply went out to look at the population. So we did some basic surveys, present absence. Are they there? Are they not? How many terminal males could we find? How many females do we think are associated between each of these and stuff like that?
0: That's really cool. Hogfish. Yeah. Like you kind of mentioned, it's a really popular fish to hunt and catch to its own detriment. Uh, So it's, it's nice to see that there's some studies going on and we're kind of monitoring it a little bit more closely. And I know there's been some regulation that's come out recently that puts a little bit more protection on them because their numbers did dwindle so drastically.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think they increased the, the, the size limit by a few inches. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: What are you doing for your PhD? Studying more corals, which is awesome, and in Columbia.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So tell me a little bit about these corals that love adverse conditions.
1: Oh, man. This ecosystem, this coral reef community is like, it's really intriguing. Again, it's something that doesn't make sense, and so that's why it's really interesting and curious. And so there is near the, near the coast of Cartagena. So Cartagena is the coastal city in Colombia. And then just offshore of that is a smaller island called Tierra Bomba. And along the front of that and crouching you know, a little further south near uh, the coast of Panama, there's a coral reef chain um, that stretches along that area. Now, what's really interesting about these coral reef communities is that they are in direct impact. So they're in direct line of fire from a channel that uh, is a major uh, outflow from the Colombian country. It's called the Channel DK or mm-hmm. the Canal de DK. And it pumps out a lot of coastal waste, so runoff nutrients, people who use fertilizers, anyone that burns fires for you know anything like that, any kind of pollutants can get washed into this river. And it mm-hmm. runs mainly up through the central part of the country and um, comes out right over this reef called Varadero Reef. Mm-hmm. And in such a highly impacted location, you would expect these corals not to do so well or not to look so well. mm mm-hmm. And in fact, when you go out there, if you first look down, it's not what you think of this crystal clear, beautiful, vibrant (laughs) coral reefs in the Keys or in St. Thomas. It almost looks like chocolate milk on the surface. It's really Mm -hmm. murky, fresh water that actually sits on top of the salt water. So it's highly impacted. And yet, as soon as you go down underneath that layer, there are huge, massive bouldering corals that... Are probably thousands of years old, that seem unfazed by this uh, outpour of nutrients and waste. Mm. and that contradiction really gets us. My advisor, Dr. Monica Medina, she's been do, she's actually from Colombia, so she's done a lot of research in this area to try to understand how these corals are responding uh, to these kind of impacts,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because. As we continue to address our own impacts on the reef, coastal runoff, especially in Florida and in the Keys, understanding ecosystems like this can can help infer management how best to protect these places. (laughs) We can understand how best to support these corals under these types of conditions.
0: Right. Fascinating. Well, I'm excited to see where your
1: research leads you. Indeed. Yeah. So we're studying the micro. I'm so sorry. So the approach that we are taking with this in Dr. Medina's lab is the microbiome. And so I know many people are now becoming aware of the the human microbiome project, mm-hmm. where we understand that there's basically trillions of bacteria on our skin and in our mouths and in our stomachs and etc. And these bacteria actually have a huge influence or impact on how we feel, what we crave. It Mm -hmm. helps us battle certain illnesses and diseases. And so what you can get from that is that bacteria play a real important, significant role in the physiology of who we are. And the same can be said for corals. The bacteria that can be found inside coral tissue and in their skeleton and even in their mucus that they produce has huge influences on how corals can survive. And what we're really interested in is studying the microbiome, the microbial community, what kind of microbes are present in these corals under these conditions and how does this relationship benefit these corals to survive. That's basically one of the major Questions that we're trying to go in. And so we're taking small previous researchers um, in the past have taken small tissue samples. They've taken skeletal samples. They've taken mucus samples. When I got a chance to travel to Colombia, I was collecting sediment samples. So we've taken small um, containers full of the sediment in there to study what kind of microbes live in the sediment, right? That might also, be a, con- a contributor to the microbial community found within coral reefs. And um, that was one project. Mm. <laughs> the second project, and the one that I'm really excited about, is uh, studying coral reefs using coral cores. Mm.
0: So, like actually our- taking like a sample from the coral like from a specific species of coral
1: correct so we we primarily targeted these big bouldering corals that are really popular Uh, this one is called orbicella fabulata it's kind of it's called the mountainous star coral yes and we collaborated with a local university in Colombia where they had these uh, hydraulic teams go out with these tools and drill these long about two about six feet two meter long coral cores Mm-hmm. And then we took him back to the lab, and our collaborator took him to the hospital, which during COVID was very challenging. No.
0: <laughs> I can only imagine.
1: You're right. It was, it was, that was challenging indeed. But they took him to the hospital to run CT scans and x rays to look at the bands and the rings and to basically date back in time uh, sections of the coral. And so we were able to look back about. 80 to over 100 years our oldest sample is from the like 1915 and i was in columbia removing small fragments from each of these cores across time right so taking them every five to ten years mm-hmm. back to the early 90s and uh thanks to a new approach or in science, we can actually extract DNA from these ancient samples.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this technique was more revolutionized with human remains and more terrestrial ecosystems, right? Obviously, studying ancient things from the permafrosts, studying tombs and other uh, ancient samples and being able to extract DNA from these samples to gain a better understanding of them of these samples over time. And our lab here at Penn State, Dr. Medina's lab, has proven that we can actually do this with corals and actually collect DNA that can signal corals, uh, different types of protists, fungi, and bacteria as well, and algae. And so part of my research is to extract DNA from these samples to try to understand the historical microbiome of these corals and we are really interested in certain time frames particularly mm-hmm. this channel so this channel was actually widened over time multiple times it was first widened in the 1940s it was dredged mm-hmm. out that put out a lot of sediment and influenced these reefs and then it was dredged again in the 80s and so these will be uh, particular areas of interest that we look at to see how do these corals respond over time? How did they respond in terms of the microbes, in terms of their algae symbionts uh, to gain a better understanding of how corals can respond today?
0: Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I really love this imagery of taking a coral, like a slab of coral into the hospital and being like, we need a CT scan, doc. we got to see what's wrong.
1: <laughs> yes. It in the was middle of a pandemic. Right. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, man. But it was unforgettable experience. I loved uh, the country of Colombia. People were welcoming and warm to me. And it was lush and tropical in the major city of Cali. And then the coral reefs in Cartagena and along the coast were some of the most beautiful coral reefs I've ever seen. Just a field of lettuce coral, or the, the genus is called agaricia, but mm-hmm. just... As far as the eye can see, just lettuce corals and different bouldering corals. I was, uh, it was a dream come true.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, it does sound like a dream. Awesome. So we are. I feel like we could talk to you a long time and geek out on corals, right. but we we're kind of running out of time. Uh, so one of my new favorite questions to ask is if you had an, an unlimited amount of funding, somebody just was like blank check here you
1: go. What would you use it for? Wow. You know, you know. surprisingly, I've thought about this a lot. If I had unlimited, if I had access to funds and research, I would start my own study abroad. Okay. Very similar to the one that I worked in, which unfortunately closed in 2018 and 2019. Oh, uh, the, the one down in Bonaire? Yeah, yeah, it shut down, which was Aww. really heartbreaking for me. But yeah, with that money, I would start a nonprofit where undergraduates and even graduate students could travel to a small Caribbean island to get that kind of intimate one on one interaction with coral reefs or tropical marine ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I think there is an extremely I think there's an extreme value in getting a chance to study them beyond a the classroom, right? Yes. And I think that's where I study abroad's are so powerful and so impactful, because studying coral reefs in a classroom, behind a text, you know, behind a desk or a screen through a textbook is one way, right? But to kind of reinforce that by diving and seeing it in the wild, you know, that's something that is that lasts with you you won't forget that and these types of study abroads actually pump a lot of money into the local economy Mm -hmm. they hire you know local islanders to participate and uh, we are offered to give talks and presentations and so we're allowed to disseminate our research and share our findings with the local community and get them involved to protect it right it also offers students, a great, uh, you know, graduate students or people who are out of college to get experience teaching and interacting with professors and doing this kinds of research and the logistics of all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I could, you know, if I could run something like this, then I could focus on particular research topics that were very interested to me, right? I wouldn't have to... Uh, hop on a project that was already being established, right? So like in many circumstances, working for the state or working for um, a university or what have you, you usually don't have the freedom to choose your own research. You're usually hopping on research that's ongoing or something very similar. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to to start a study abroad and uh, focus on like coral restoration and stuff like that. Yeah, that'd be fun.
0: I love it so much. I'm, I'm such a huge fan of getting any and everybody out in the water because I yeah. firmly believe that you protect what you love. And it's, you know, one thing to like hear about it on an amazing podcast um, or watching a <laughs> documentary, right? <laughs> but to actually get in the water and see it is just a, a totally different experience. Uh, and I think it's very powerful. Indeed. Speaking of getting in the water, maybe not. One of my very, very favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an amazing day on the water. You just, like, everything went right. You saw a whole field of lettuce coral and you're super excited about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> or it could just be a day that things went wrong and it makes a really great story now.
1: Man, there's so many. Um <laughs>
0: I know, it's a hard question.
1: It is so hard. (laughs) So, okay, so this is a fun story. So uh, I was in grad school, I was in St. Thomas, and I was helping another lab study um, um, coral reefs down, oh, sorry, okay. So I was in grad school, and I was helping a different lab study fish populations on a deep, water coral reef ecosystem considered, it's called a mesophotic reef. So these mm. are coral reefs that exists around a hundred to 300 feet of depth. They're absolutely mm. amazing ecosystems. And again, confounding thus makes it very interesting, right? How corals can live so deep with so little light. And right. uh, they actually recruit a large number of large groupers and big, um, open pelagic predators mm-hmm. and so we free fall down into the abyss you can't see anything when you hop in and then mm-hmm. eventually you see the bottom and we're free falling down and we're right so these coral reefs exist right on the edge of the puerto rican shelf so okay. there's this tectonic plate basic basin that connects puerto rico and the u.s virgin islands there's a huge shelf that connects the to and um, it sits about 100 feet, so it's maybe two miles off St. Thomas, you're at 100 feet for about eight or nine miles until you go offshore and you reach the shelf. Mm-hmm. And so we're right at the shelf and we free fall down. And as we're going down, shooting right over the shelf, right? So maybe three, 400 feet of water is coming up over the reef was one of the largest hammerhead sharks I'd ever seen. Mm. And I'd only seen one other hammerhead shark in my entire life up to that point. And so as soon as I saw it, I screamed in my regulator, right? So, <laughs> bubbles. <laughs> and I was like, Hammerhead! And there's a sign. I mean, I'm like miming it here behind this podcast, so you can't see it. But there's a sign for Hammerhead. And I turned to my buddy and I screamed, Hammerhead! <laughs> and this giant hammerhead just rockets over the reef. And it's like, you know, maybe nine feet Oh my Almost gosh. three meters. It's a big shark. And it moved so quickly. It was confounding to see something so large move so fast underwater. <laughs> and as I kind of exhaled, it released a bunch of bubbles and it kind of freaked the shark out. And it did this kind of juke move to avoid me. And as it passed, you can just see along the side of the body. It was just ripped. <laughs> like it's it was such an, an amazing experience because it was just full of muscle. You could see the definition and just how powerful and majestic and streamlined these animals really are. I mean, Mm -hmm. these guys are top predators for a reason, and it's just a really cool and unforgettable experience to see and witness something so close like that. Yes.
0: Amazing. I love that. (laughs) Diving is... It's so fun because you just never know what you're going to see, right? Yeah. Like, I'm sure that's not the first time that site's been visited. That may have been the first time a hammerhead was seen, though, you know?
1: Who knows?
0: So cool. That's a really fun story. Thank you for sharing.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Before we end, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth into the world and do or take away. What would you like the audience to get from your episode today?
1: Yes, thank you for this opportunity. I would love to encourage your listeners a very simple um, piece of advice that I think is applicable to anyone aged 90 to 9, (laughs) and uh, that's to get involved.
0: Yes.
1: It doesn't matter um, where you live. I'm sure even in uh, rural areas, there are Efforts and programs to try to conserve natural wild spaces. Mm -hmm. And if you're particularly interested in coral reefs or ocean or marine biology, good grades, getting involved in school can really set you apart. And I really think that's what helped me. My involvement while I was in college gave me the skills, the experience, and the kind of frame of mind to be very competitive in marine science. And so whether it's a student organization or if it's a local nonprofit, there are so many now outreach organizations through social media where you can disseminate science and ocean science and conservation activities, participating in podcasts like these, which (laughs) spread this beautiful message of how to become a marine scientist from different perspectives, people with unique backgrounds and ideas that might relate to a wide audience, anything beyond, you know, pressing like on Instagram, (laughs) I think can have a profound impact. And the beauty of it is you can, that can look like, you know, reducing straws or your plastic use, Mm -hmm. using recyclable bags. If a million people all chime in to do this, that has a profound impact. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what you look like, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, you can have an impact. Um, And I think the best way to do that is to get involved.
0: I love it. It's a great ask. Well, Colin, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really, really enjoyed chatting with you.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Kyra.
0: Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.